Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. Our next discussion is going to look at opioid therapy for older individuals. And really, when we're thinking about opioids, I want to talk mostly about the effect of the CDC guideline and the FDA blueprint recommendations that have really guided our therapeutics in treatment for uh, older individuals. So, you know, when we're talking about using pharmacologic medicine for chronic non-cancer pain or end-of-life care pain, there have been some significant guidelines. And, and really, uh, they're very straightforward. We have to be able to select the appropriate analgesic uh, and prescribe it at the appropriate dose by an appropriate route. Um, and then, of course, selecting a, the correct dosing interval and be ready to augment the analgesia by using a breakthrough product. So if somebody is on a long-acting uh, medication, like an opioid, a long-acting opioid, and they are getting end-of-dose uh, failure or they're having what we call incident pain, pain that occurs when they go to do something like get out of bed to the commode or, you know, trying to take a walk, uh, we should be able to use something as a, an appropriate breakthrough dose of a medication for them. The pharmacologic management, especially at, at end of life, dictates that we titrate the dose aggressively. And in olders, of course, we're always saying start low and go slow, but with respect to pain management in older individuals, especially those with um, significant pain, we really do need to start low and go and increase the dose as needed while we're anticipating and managing side effects or preventing them if possible. So with that said, some of the medications that we talked about previously, the non-steroidals, acetaminophen, uh, the uh, anticonvulsants or possibly antidepressant medications, or topicals, may be appropriate co-analgesics for use with patients who actually do have end-of-life care pain. Um, but, you know, in 2018, there was also a meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials that included over 26,000 patients with chronic non-cancer pain. Uh, and they looked at 25 trials of neuropathic pain, 32 trials with nociceptive pain, 33 trials of central sensitization, or what we now call nociceptive, I'm sorry, nosoplastic pain, um, and then six trials with mixed types of pain. And um, the evidence 
from the high quality studies showed that opioid use was associated with statistically significant but small improvements in pain and physical functioning. Uh, so they had significant improvement in their pain uh, and some improvement in their physical functioning, but they also had an increased risk of vomiting compared with placebo, which is not surprising because that can be a side effect of opioid therapies. Um, and then when they compared opioids with non-opioid alternatives that we have just mentioned, uh, they did suggest that the benefit for pain and functioning may actually be similar. So, uh, you know, they, they did give us the caveat that the evidence for that was from studies of only low to moderate quality. Why is this important? Well, if we're treating patients with chronic non-cancer pain, they are likely to require therapy for a very long period of time. And we know that long-term use of opioids has many attendant risks, not least among it, them, the fact that patients develop tolerance and need to take escalating doses of the opioid. And this emerging problem of hyperalgesia, individuals actually um, having increased pain or pain in an area uh, disparate from the original source of the pain that has been mediated through the use of the opioid. So, uh, you know, when we're thinking about chronic non-cancer pain, um, if we need to use opioids again, we need to use them very cautiously and appropriately. When the CDC in 2016 looked at the use of opioids, they specifically excluded persons with cancer or serious and, and or life-limiting disease, and also those receiving palliative care. So the CDC guideline was intended to reduce opioid prescribing and try to put some brakes on what was happening uh, in America, which was an opioid over, overuse, overdose epidemic. And uh, they did exclude patients with cancer. So for people with cancer, metastatic disease, opioids are the mainstay for treatment. Um, and we're not going to focus on them uh, more so, but we do want to recommend that if you're thinking about how to uh, use these drugs appropriately um, and you're looking at the CDC guideline for guidance, remember that the CDC specifically said, don't worry, in people with cancer, you should use them as needed. Again, treat the patients aggressively. So the, the guidelines are basically very straightforward, uh, non-pharmacologic therapy and non-opioid pharmacological therapy, as we've already discussed, are preferred for chronic pain. And you should really only consider using an opioid if the expected benefits for both pain and function are anticipated to outweigh the risks to the patient. We should clearly establish goals of function and quality of life with our patients, and these should be realistic so that we can evaluate the efficacy of using an opioid. If someone is not making uh, improvements, is not gaining analgesia or function, 
from the opioid, then we should recognize that the trial of the opioid therapy has failed and we really should only use them. Uh, we should consider removing that medication. Again, the decision to use an opioid in a patient with non-cancer pain, um, chronic non-cancer pain, should clearly have risk and benefit analysis. And if there is no benefit seen, then the medication should not be used. We should always discuss with patients their known risks and the benefits and monitor them in an ongoing fashion. So uh, we can use those five A's that we talked about earlier as ways of monitoring the patient and assessing whether things are going well or not. Um, we should, you know, of course, initiate opioid therapy with immediate release opioids. So in other words, start with a low dose or a reasonable dose of an immediate release short-acting opioid before you consider moving on to a long-acting opioid. This is so consistent with the FDA blueprint, which clarifies for us who is considered opioid tolerant. And we should not be using opioids long-acting extended release forms of opioids in individuals who have not met that criterion of opioid tolerance, which is 60 milligrams of morphine daily for a week or more, or 30 milligrams daily for a week or more of oxycodone, or an equianalgesic dose of another medication. So clearly, the goal is to prescribe the lowest effective dose and if you get to a point where your patient has been titrated to doses of around 50, we should stop and reassess what's happening and try to avoid increasing doses higher than 90 morphine milligram equivalents per day. Or if you do, you really need to carefully justify it. So some of the other guidelines were putting uh, numbers and numbers of days, recognizing that Sometimes chronic long-term use of opioids has to do with uh, treatment of acute pain, using again the lowest dose for the shortest period of time. The, the thinking is that three days may be sufficient and that more than seven days should rarely be used. Um, and again, if you are starting an opioid in an older individual, or any individual for that matter, you really do need to reevaluate uh, within one, two days, certainly no more than four days to see how things are going. Um, monitor everyone just as you would for younger people. Older individuals also are taking many, many other medications, so check the, the prescription drug monitoring program. Make sure they're not getting medications from other multiple providers. And most importantly, make sure they're not on other medications that are going to have drug-drug interactions and are going to further impair their physical and or, uh, or cognitive function. And most importantly, we should always avoid prescribing opioid pain medication for those who are receiving benzos. And I always get this question during lect after lectures from the audience, well, what do I do with all of these patients that I've inherited who are on both opioids and benzodiazepines? Um, it's a difficult question, and I think what it does is it calls for sitting down with the patient and talking very carefully about the risks that they're taking and trying to evaluate what 
is more important? Um, are they really getting a benefit from the benzodiazepine or were they taking that initially because of anxiety related to the pain? So trying to tease that out. I think the other question that has come up has been, how do I know my patient's getting a benzodiazepine? It's being prescribed by the psychiatrist. And the answer to that is, you should be checking the PDMP, and all scheduled medications are listed there. So you will know that your patient is taking the benzodiazepine. So these are pretty much a thumbnail of the guidelines that we would use when we're thinking about using opioid therapy in older individuals. And just a word about you know hepatotoxicity, drug-drug interactions. Be aware of what other medications your patient is taking. Are they taking uh, medications that will induce the cytochrome system? And if they are, you have to be very cautious and concerned about what type of opioid you're using. And if a patient has renal insufficiency, uh, you know, the M3 uh, metabolite of morphine is, is not renally excreted, and so you can have, um, uh, you know, an accumulation. So, you know, that may be a rationale for using a med different medication other than a naturally occurring opioid like morph or opiate, if you will, like morphine. So these are a lot of things to think about when we're treating older individuals. Um, and I'd like to conclude by saying this is not easy. This is a very complex topic. And I think that these educational programs and podcasts like this one can be very helpful in helping us conceptualize how to treat our senior citizens who really do deserve our care and attention. So thank you for your attention, and I appreciate you being with us today in this discussion. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.